Welcome to Big Bear Christian Center Sermon Audio. Thank you for joining us for part five of the series on heaven. Today, Pastor Rob explores the topic, the judgment seat of Christ. What does it mean to us as believers? This morning, we're going to continue on, and we're going to read from 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 1 through 10. Now, I'm going to be reading out of the New King James. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Fathers, we get into the word this morning in this message about the judgment seat of Christ. Lord, we pray that the words would be, be life, God, that you would encourage us, uh, having us have our hope fixed on you and the hope of heaven. God, that this world is not our home. God, and that you are our ultimate reward and to be with you forever. God, bless the word. I pray that, that I would decrease and you would increase father and just bring your life through the word in jesus name amen last week we talked about uh the first two events in the end times we've been talking about heaven and we're going to be following finalizing in just a couple weeks talking more in depth about heaven and so but last week we started talking about two of the events and that's the rapture and the tribulation now i want to say again this morning that there is a lot of debate regarding the end times, the, the chronology of it, um, whether things, ha- at what time they happen in the specifics. But the majority of us as evangelicals throughout the world, we believe in the, the rapture and the tribulation. And so as a church, uh, we teach and we believe that there is going to be a literal seven-year tribulation time. And it's a time spoken of in the Bible of great distress, the Bible says. It's going to be a really not a good time. It's going to be a lot of difficulties. It's at the end of the age when the Antichrist, and we've heard about the Antichrist, will rise up. And that, that in, in the book of Daniel, it talks about the abomination that causes desolation. And so during this time, the judgments of God will be poured out during the seven-year tribulation, the wrath of God. And we've seen that in the New Testament time, in the church era that we live in, that the wrath of God is being stored up. Think about the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, Thousands and hundreds of thousands would be wiped out directly from the hand of God. It was the wrath of God being poured out. But in the New Testament, the Bible teaches us that the wrath of God is being stored up. For the last 2,000 years, the wrath of God is being stored up. And we can just read a few chapters in Genesis or Exodus throughout the Old Testament and find the wrath of God killing thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. Imagine the wrath of God that's going to be, that is being stored up right now that will be poured out in the tribulation period. Bad news. I mean, you know, just kind of a bummer time. Daniel 9, 27 
said, and this is one of the scriptures where we get the tri- uh, tribulation, the seven years. It says, he will confirm a covenant with many for one week or one seven-year period. In the middle of the, the week, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And this he is talking about the Antichrist. And we're not going to get into to the Antichrist um, th- this morning, but this is the beginning. And then Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22 in the NIV says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, just like it said in Daniel, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. That's a, that's a heavy scripture. Unequaled. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. That means that the seven-year tribulation period is going to be harder, worse than the flood which wiped out everyone. Because it's going to be an ongoing time of seven years of ongoing wrath and judgments. And this place is not going to be one that we'd want to be around in. Now, the rapture, which is spoken of in various scriptures, is... It, what, what most uh, Christians believe, and, and the majority of people have fall to a pre-tribulation, uh, that, that the rapture will happen right at the very beginning of the tribulation. That's what we talked about last week a little bit. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, I'm going to read these scriptures. These are, these are some of the scriptures that, that lead us to believe that there's going to be a rapture, where God is going to take us out of the earth, the, those that are still alive right before the tribulation, or perhaps in the middle of the tribulation. And it says, listen, 1 Corinthians 15 says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The other scripture is 1 Thessalonians uh, 4.17. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be always with the Lord. Now, I'm going to get into this a little bit more later at the, at the end of this message or, or next week, depending on how, we can, how I can move through. But the, the rapture is not the same as the second coming. It's not the same because in the rapture, we go to meet Jesus in the air. In the second coming, he comes down to the earth. And he comes with the church. And so we have to remember that these are not the same, same things. The second coming is separate from the rapture. So this tri- scripture is saying that he will come and we will meet with him in the air. And the Bible says that the dead in Christ will rise first. And that was one of the, 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 the encouragements there that they were worried about the dead. And we know that to be apart from the body is to be with Christ. And we've talked about that in the series that those who've died are already with Christ. But at the, at the rapture is the first resurrection. The dead in Christ, their bodies will be physically resurrected. And God is able to do that because we think, well, what about you know, all the people who've decayed? What about those who've died in fire? What about those who've died in cremation? It says that their bodies will come and they will be resurrected and then they will be glorified. And they will then have their heavenly dwelling, a heavenly body. And so their bodies will actually come. And then those of us who are alive, we will, in the twinkling of an eye, it says, 
we will be taken up to him and we will be changed. And so whatever that looks like, I'm not sure. But the Bible talks about our glorious bodies, our heavenly bodies, our bodies that that will never die. They'll have power. They'll you know, they'll be awesome. So much better than what we have now. Amen. And so this is the rapture is the is the resurrection and the rapture of the church. Now, not everyone, just the rapture of the church. And that's, I believe, is going to happen. And, and, you know, when I read it, I still I don't know if it's going to be pre-trib or mid-trib. I, I, I believe it's either one. I don't think there's a reason to have a rapture after the tribulation because the Bible talks about us being saved from the wrath of God. And that's the purpose of the rapture. Well, so the, the main wrath, the, the, the second three-and-a-half-year period is worse in the tribulation. And so I'm still, you know, when I read, I, I can't land that it's either pre-trib or mid-trib, but I, I, I know we're not going to go through the radical wrath of God being poured out in the tribulation period. At least that's the way I believe. You can go, and there's some great books and great teaching on, on this whole thing. And so at that day, the trumpet will sound. The dead, it says, it said in 1 Corinthians, the dead will be raised imperishable. That means that we'll never die again, and we will meet and be with the Lord forever. That is something we should be looking forward to greatly. We also know that the rapture is, is an any-moment occurrence. It could happen at any moment, especially if it's pre-tribulation. And this is why this is one of the scriptures that would lean us to believe that the rapture will happen before the tribulation because it's going to happen at any moment. We don't know when. Well, once the tribulation happens, the Antichrist will be in power. And a lot of the things of revelation will start happening. And so we would actually be, be knowing a little bit more that the rapture is really imminent. And so this is one of the scriptures that would, would lean towards that the rapture is going to happen before that seven-year period. And so um, in Revelation 3.10 is the scripture that says that he's going to save us from his wrath. So, so those are what we talked about last week, the rapture and the tribulation. This morning... We're going to talk in depth about um, the judgment seat of Christ. There's a few other things that we'll hit if we have time at the end. That we w- There's not a lot to talk about. Um, but I wanted to spend some time talking about the judgment seat of Christ, which is also referred to as the Bema or the Bema seat. In fact, there was a book not that long ago out, very popular, I believe it's called the Bema seat of Christ. Bema is the Greek word for judgment seat. And just in, in the word judgment seat, uh, it's going to bring up a lot of confusion, so I want to clarify that a little bit. Um, after the, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's going to be, in chronology, I believe, I believe this is what's going to happen. I believe it's going to be the rapture and then the tribulation. Now, at the time of the rapture, we're going to go up. That's going to be the, the first resurrection. Before Christ comes, which is at the end of the tribulation, we're going to have the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Before He comes in his glory, with all his angels, and with us riding horses back down to judge the earth. And then that's the second coming of Christ. And then, and then after that starts the millennium. And so as we're moving on this morning on this, discussion of the end times comes with a lot of emotions for different people. Uh, you talk about the end times, for some people it's a, it's a thing of, of fear or dread or worry and wonder. We don't know. Some, maybe it's for yourself or maybe it's for other people. But if you can make the leap of faith, um, you know, to believe in evolution, then and, and to believe that we're no different than chimpanzees and whales, uh, that, that, that it's just all, you know, cosmic goo becoming flesh, then the end times shouldn't worry you because at the end of your life, you're just going to be done. 
and it's just going to stop. And that's what evolution teaches us. But and if, if, if there's someone in here who's made that leap, and I think it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in a creator in the Bible because there's so many gaps, there's so many issues with evolution of going, well, then who started it all? At least with God, you can say, well, God can do whatever he wants to do, and so he created things, and he, he's doing it his way. Um, but, but if that's not you, if you have that faith in Christ, if you believe in God as the creator, that you were made to have a relationship with him, and uh, that, that there is something that separates us from the dolphins and the chimpanzees because we were created in God's image and that we have a soul, then this subject is so important for you because we all think about it. What happens when I die? You know, what is heaven like? What is, what is going to happen? And so Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has put eternity in man's heart. And we, we think about eternity. That there's something, you know, I look at my dog Indigo, and I, I don't think she's ever going, I wonder what happens when I die. You know, she's just going, I wonder what, when I'm going to get my food. You know, I'm wondering when I get to go for a walk. You know, animals don't think of these things because they don't have a soul. That there's such a difference between mankind and animals. And yes, there's, they are God's created beings, and animals are amazing, and they even have personalities but they're not worried about this eternity thing but we are because eternity is in our hearts and so we this morning this message this series is is so important for us and that's why we're going to we've been spending this is our fifth week we're going to spend just a couple couple more weeks and then we'll finish up the book of john um, because it is such so important for us as believers to to put our hope in heaven and to get a little bit of understanding in this topic. I've had a few people come and say, you know, I've been in church a long time. I've never heard this taught in, in depth. Um, and it's important that we understand because other people will come to you and say, hey, tell me about heaven. You know, the book, uh, the book and movie, Heaven is for Real. And so people, if they know you're a Christian, they're going to start coming to you and say, hey, help me to understand heaven. We as a believer, the Bible says that we should be ready to give an answer to, to anyone who asks us for the reason for, of our hope. Well, our hope is in heaven. We should be able to have an answer about what is heaven like. How do you get there? What's going to happen? We don't have to be scholars, but we have to be educated. And that's the, the, been the point of this message. And so, so far what we've seen is that believers in Jesus, when they die, they immediately go to be with Christ. There's no soul sleep. In, in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.8, it says, We prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. In Philippians chapter 1, it talks about to depart and to be with Christ is very much better. Well, if we just died and laid in the ground and had a soul sleep, that wouldn't be better. We might as well just wait around until the resurrection or, or to get raptured. So the Bible teaches us that when we die, we go to heaven immediately. We, we've talked about that over the few weeks. We've also seen um, to be with Christ presently, if you die, that you go to be with Christ, that that place, we call it heaven, is not our final home. It's to be with him right now in paradise, but our final place is not going to be up there. It's going to be here on a new earth with a new heavens and a new earth. And that's where we'll, we'll go in a couple of weeks and really talk more about what that, what that could look like. And I, I use the word could because I'm going to, in that message, in that time, I'm going to bring a lot of thoughts and ideas and possibilities that the scriptures point to but we won't know what the new earth is going to be like. But I want us to all be thinking that, wow, 
it could be like this because this is what the Bible teaches us. And so it won't be a doctrinal, this is exactly what it's going to be like. There are some things I think we can find from scriptures that we can lay a, a, a strong doctrine that says this is truth. And there's going to be some things that I think he wants us to imagine and think about and say, you know, it might be like this. And I, again, I talked about that a few weeks ago in the message. That's a wonderful place to be, to imagine, to begin to think. God created that in you to give that hope. And so before that time, before we go to, to that final resting place, what I called from our adoption classes our forever home, you know, where we're looking to be in our forever home is going to be the rapture and the tribulation and this next one, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And so this morning in the scripture we read is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 10, it says this again. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be received what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, real quick, this is not the judgment, the final judgment that we hear about, which is called the great white throne judgment. At the very, very, very end, after the millennium, when Satan and his fallen angels, and all those who aren't saved get cast into hell. This is a different judgment. This judgment happens before Christ's return, before the millennium. And it's called the judgment seat of Christ. There's another scripture in Romans chapter 14 that says the judgment seat of God. It's because God has given Christ all authority to be our judge. And so what is this judgment? We're going to talk about real quick four simple and obvious observations about the judgment, even from the scripture that we just read. The first one, it said that we must all appear. This is Christians. He wrote that to Christians. And all Christians will stand before Christ as judge. Those who've died and those who are alive at the rapture. They're all going to be judged at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. Not unbelievers. The, the, un, the unbelievers and the unrighteous dead, they'll be judged at the second resurrection, which is the resurrection to death. And that's a scary one. That's the great white throne judgment. Are we okay? If you're taking notes, get the recording if you need to go back and listen again. So the second thing, so all Christians will stand before Christ the judge. The second thing is that our judge will be Christ and God. It's, it's in tandem, but it's, and so that's what I said, Romans 14, 10. We must all stand before the judgment seat of God or the judgment seat of Christ as in Corinthians. And so God has given him authority to execute this judgment. And so they are one in this judgment. The third simple thing that we learn about this judgment is that it's going to be after we die. We're going to have this judgment, and all Christians are going to face this judgment. Now, I, I could ask, and I'm, I'm not going to do that, but I, I, I imagine if I asked who thought that we didn't have to face judgment, that a number of hands would have gone up. And I don't want to do that because I don't want anyone to feel, they would say, you know, I, I've always been taught that we're not judged anymore. No, actually, we are all judged at the judgment seat of Christ. But we're not judged for our sin, and that's what we're going to get into today. We're not, this isn't a judgment of our sin because our sins are, are forgiven. So our judgment, this judgment, will happen after we die, will die. And then fourth, when we stand before Christ as judged, we'll be judged according to our deeds in this life. Right there, many of you have, have grown up in the church or been in the church and thought, I didn't think we were judged because of what we did. I thought... We are only judged for knowing Jesus or not knowing Jesus. If we know Jesus, there is no judgment. But this is what the judgment seat of Christ is about. And so there's probably already a little fear de developing inside of you. And that might be a healthy fear, but I want to talk about 
uh, alleviate the real dread of this judgment. Because, um, so I want to I alleviate that, but it's important to understand that the Bible is very clear that we will be judged for what we do and don't do in, the, in, in this earth as Christians. And so it's really important. In fact, Revelation 22.12 says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every person according to what he has done. Matthew 16 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I'm shaking in my boots. There is a judgment waiting for us as Christians. And if we don't understand that, it'll come with dread. If we have a wrong understanding of it, we will think it's, it's too easy and that there's nothing at all to have a, a healthy sense of the fear of God and living for him. And so the, the important of this message of the judgment seat of Christ is that the way you live is important. The way you live is important. It's not unimportant. We, sometimes I think that Christians can kind of get this thing, you know, I got saved, I gave my life to Jesus, that's enough, I'm going to heaven. Well, the way we live is important, and that's how we will receive these rewards that it's talking about at the judgment seat of Christ. We okay? So what, what is this judgment? What's the, what's the aim of this judgment? When, in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5, 9, it talks about the judgment seat. And that word in the Greek is bima. And so, so we have to define this in order to, to get it. You know, we read the Bible in English. It was written in Aramaic, in Hebrew, and in Greek. Did I just? Nope. Down one way. Maybe that was it. It was written in different languages. And if you speak two languages, you know that sometimes it is hard to translate a word precisely. You know, sometimes there's five words to, to interpret one word, and you have to know the context in order to get the, the word. And this is why we have a problem sometimes in English, and that's why sometimes there's different translations. And so the word bima in, in the Gospels was used, it, it was a word that was being used at the time of Christ, and it was used in a couple of settings. One, it was used where a magistrate would actually sit on a platform and he would pronounce judgment on people. And that's the word bima. And so the word is judgment. And it's, and it's, it's appropriate and the, what we think of judgment. But when Paul used the word bima, he also used, he was often talking about um, the, the Greek sports, right? Running in a race, receiving a crown. Paul used the word bima, I believe, in a different way than the magistrate, the judge ruler who would sit down and cast judgment. Paul used it, which in a way that uh, other people wrote, um, wrote about at the same time. And this is according to um, J. Hampton Keithley, not that we, we care, but... Um, he did the research for me on this. Um, and it says, This word bima was taken from the Isthmian Games, where the contestants would compete for the prize under the careful scrutiny of judges who would make sure that every rule of the contest was obeyed. The victor of a given event who participated according to the rules was led by the judge to the platform called the bima. So they were being scrutinized, making sure they lived accord, they, they, they operated according to the rules, and then to get their reward, they would actually come to a platform that was called the bima, the judgment. And there the wreath was placed on their head as a symbol 
of victory. Okay? That's a little bit different picture, isn't it? Okay. Um, Samuel Hoyt, who was a, a theologian from... Um, wrote, Paul was picturing the believer as a competitor in a spiritual contest as the Victorian, victorious Grecian athlete appeared before the Bema to receive his perishable award. So the Christian will appear before Christ's Bema to receive his imperishable award. The judge at the Bema bestowed rewards to the victor. He did not whip the losers. That's important. Okay? He didn't whip the losers. He rewarded those who deserved the reward. The Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, is not about receiving a punishment for the things that we did. It's about receiving rewards or losing rewards for what we do in this body, for your deeds, good and bad. And so the judgment seat of Christ is, is not a, the casting of judgment and punishment. And yet, there is that sense of you'll be rewarded for what you've done, good or bad. Losing rewards, gaining rewards. And so there's a lot of discussion about the judgment seat of Christ in the church. And it's, it's not that what some people think, that God is going to dispense a just retributions for sins. Um, even that it might be a time of great terror and sorrow. Even as Christians, those, so, those who understood that there was a judgment for Christians, the judgment seat, there is that feeling. But the other end, of this, other end of that spectrum of those who think that it's going to be terror and, and dread to stand before Christ are those who believe that it's just an awards ceremony. And every Christian gets an award, like the sports ceremonies for second grade basketball, where every one of the players gets a trophy. You know, and then there's me who says, they don't deserve a trophy. Come on. What are you doing? They're every, everyone now gets a trophy. I mean, it wasn't like that when I played sports. I mean, when I was young and, you know, or at least my friends played sports, it's like, you know, only the winning team got the reward. And so there are some people, at the, the one who think, oh, the, the judgment seats terror and dread, and then there's the others who, who are like, oh, it's wonderful, and we're all going to get a reward. Well, no. The Bible says that he will give the reward to those who did good for what you do good and what you do bad. And so I think it's in the middle to some degree. The, the Bible teaches, we need to know this, that we're saved by grace and that our, that our sins are forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the Bible also teaches that there's consequence to what's done in the body. Amen? The, there's consequence to your sin, both here in this world and in the eternal sense as well. The parable of Jesus that he, t that he talks about, of the, the faithful stewards, he gave each one a talent, and one went out and gained ten more. Right? He gave one talent, and he gained ten more. And what did Jesus say? Put him in charge over ten cities. And this was, a, this was a parable of the end times of what would happen to the believers in the world after. And he says, put him in charge of ten cities. And the one who got five, put him in charge of five cities. And so, so we've all been given a measure of grace but the reward will come on what we do for him. And you might be put in charge of ten cities or five cities. Your reward will be greater or less. But the judgment seat of Christ is not about sending us to hell. In order to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, that means that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you're going to heaven. So you can't go to hell from that point. But you will receive rewards or not receive rewards. And that makes me a little fearful. 
in this world, we have, have present consequences of our sin. We talked a little bit about that. I'm just going to name a couple things that happen because it's important for us to know we don't just receive Christ and live like hell. Literally. You know, we, we receive Christ and we live for him. And, and we try to be faithful. And it's by grace that we're saved. And yet in James it says, and yet I'll show you my faith by the works that I do. See, it's that, that knife blade that we, we walk on constantly of grace and works. We don't work to get saved, but we work because we're saved. And this is the result of our, of our salvation, and this is what's going to happen at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ. But in this life, when we sin, we, get a, we have a loss of fellowship with the Lord. Amen? How many of you have, have gone into sin? And I'm not saying you, you're driving down the road and, and somebody cuts you off and you cuss, cuss them out or something, like Shannon does all the time. Um... <laughs> You're all going, right. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those of, of us in this room that you, you don't accidentally sin. You don't fall into sin. You go, ooh, that looks good. <laughs> and you choose to sin. And you live in this sin for a time. And when you're there, you lose fellowship with the Lord. You feel it. You know. You're like, oh, Lord, where, where are you? And he says, I'm right here. You're the one who moved. So we lose fellowship when we, when we sin. But we don't lose our salvation. When we sin on this earth, we, there's a divine discipline that comes. Hebrews talks about that, that God is a loving Father and He disciplines those He loves. Who's ever been disciplined by the Lord for, for not doing what, what God wanted? You know, I've been disciplined. It's not fun. If you haven't been disciplined, we need to, we need to maybe check into that a little bit because God will discipline us and, and we'll find that He does that. So sometimes we have loss of fellowship. We have a divine discipline from the Lord. Uh, I believe that sometimes we have a loss of power and production in Him. You, you know, you ever see a Christian like, what happened to you? You know, your life was, was full of the Lord and you were serving Him and you were, people were getting saved and there was an anointing and now you're just kind of blah. Well, they're still saved, but there's a loss of power, a loss of production in their Christian experience because they're lining themselves up with sin and the devil. And so that's one of the consequences of sin. We have broken relationships with God and with others when we sin. That's another result of sin. You know, I mean, how many times you go in and you start gossiping about somebody and then you get a broken relationship? Why? Because you're living in sin. And so there's, that's another consequence of sin. Those things, loss of physical health. The Bible says that that not all sickness comes from it, but that, that sin can be and often comes from, or sickness can come from sin. And so sometimes even a physical health can be, can be brought on by a sinful condition. And, the, and, the, and there's more, and there are more, but the, the last one, and this is what we're talking about, is the loss of rewards at the Bema. And this is where it goes into eternal. Your actions on earth affect you eternally because there's rewards coming. There's crowns that will be given, and there's rewards. We don't know exactly what these are, but I believe literally they will be, the Bible says that we're going to rule and reign with Christ, reigning over real cities in the, in the future kingdom. And that some of, some of you in this room will be ruling cities. And maybe I'll just be your janitor. Praise the Lord. You know, this is what, what's, what's coming. So, but there's a loss of rewards coming. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 3.13 says. Each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. 
If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved so as through fire. And so that time is coming, and there's going to be that, that testing, and there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. And so what, what, why are we doing the beam? What, what, what happens at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ? You're going to evaluate the quality of every believer's work. What you do here is going to be evaluated to see whether or not it was built with, with gold and precious metals or with wood, hay, and stubble, as the Bible talks about. And it's going to be evaluated. I'm going, now I'm shaking again. I know I'm not going to hell at the judgment seat. I know he's not going to be punishment, but he's going to, he's going to evaluate my life and say, you know what you did here? That was wood, hay, and stubble. It was worthless. It, it wasn't good. It wasn't done with gold and precious stones. And I believe that some of that is not even going to be the work itself. It's going to be the attitude in which you do it. When you do the works for yourself or to get glory, I believe those things are going to find out to be wood, hay, and stubble because it's about our attitude and why we do the things. So it's going to evaluate the quality of our, our work, whether it's good or bad acceptable and worthy of rewards or unacceptable. He's going to destroy and remove unacceptable production. And that's where he's going to just get rid of it. That's worthless. You know, I think, I, I mean, I see this picture of us kind of all standing before God and saying, look what I did and holding things up. You know, well, yeah, well, I did this. And he's going to evaluate and say, yeah, that's, that's, going to, that's burned. Well, I did this. And, and inside we know. We know, don't we? You know, on the outside, we, we towed our things. Yeah, well, I taught Sunday school. I did this. And though some of those things will say, yes, you did, and you're building a foundation. But other things, because of maybe your attitude or the things that you do, will be destroyed. And then we'll receive a reward for the good that we've done, portrayed by those symbols of gold, silver, and precious stone. 1 Corinthians, it was chapter 3, not 13. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. It's going to be revealed with fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says, Therefore do not go passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. The motive in what, the, what you do is important. The motive in how you do it and what you do is just as important. Motive is so important. When we think of, well, what are the negative things of, this, of the judgment seat of Christ? We, there's scriptures that talk about giving account of himself, suffering loss, shrinking away from shame. And I want to really quick, I'm going to hit these and try to, try to move on. And we're actually, I'm doing really well to get through this today, which is good. But I was hoping we might get further. You know, we, we read scriptures like 1 Corinthians 3.15. It talks about um, lo- losing, suffering loss. He shall suffer loss. What he's talking about is not loss of salvation, not loss of fellowship with God. He's just saying loss of your rewards. When you read scriptures about Christians standing, in ju- standing before judgment and losing, uh, losing, it's really about losing the rewards that, that you should have. Um, in 1 Corinthians 9.27, it talks about being disqualified. And, and I don't think he's being disqualified from heaven. I don't, we don't believe that, we, you can, you know, that, that Paul, after his whole life, could say, oh, wow, well, what a bummer, I lost my salvation. 
but he's disqualified from receiving the prize. Right? He ran the race, but, but, but the prize isn't just heaven. It's rewards in heaven. Now, let's go to real quick to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There's, there's probably more than this, but there's at least two words for good and two words for bad. And in the, this section here, the word for good is more, is transla- it's agathos, or agathos, actually. And it's valuable like a good fruit. And bad is unacceptable like rotten fruit. There's other words that were used in the Bible for good and evil. Kalos and kakos. And that would be like, like evil and, and, and sinful That's, or, or righteous, good and evil. The words here, good and bad, are not evil and righteous or that kind of good and bad, but it's like unacceptable and acceptable, good and bad. And so, so as, as, we're, as we're living our life going, Lord, you know, it's not just that I'm sinning or I'm not sinning. As long as I'm not sinning, then everything is good. It's no are, you, are your works acceptable to God or unacceptable to God? Are you doing the things he's calling you to do? Living the way he wants you to live? Being faithful to witness to the people he's calling you to witness to? Being faithful to serve in the ministries that he's calling you to minister to, minister in? Or, or, or working with your neighbors? Things that you would go, well, that's not a sin. I didn't bring my neighbors a loaf of bread, I, so that's not a sin. Well, yeah, if God told you to do it, it's, it's good or bad, acceptable, unacceptable, where your reward is being built up in heaven. 1 John 2.28, listen to this scripture. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You ever read that scripture? I, you read it a lot, and you go, wow, what does that mean? Shrink from him in shame. You're at the, now, take everything we're learning. Okay, he's come halfway to earth and we've been raptured up or if, if we're alive or we, we're, we're with him. It's before his coming all the way to earth and we're at the judgment seat of Christ and you have all of your memories. You know what you did and you're next in line. Abide in him so that you won't shrink back in shame. You know You know what you're doing. You know what you're not doing. This is what he's talking about. Live in him. Abide in him so that when you're standing there at his coming, at the judgment seat of Christ, you don't shrink back in shame and went, man, did I waste my life living for myself. That's the shame he's talking about. You know, we're not going to do everything perfect. But, but, you know, there's those times you go, you know, you know your heart. And you go, I'm trying. I'm really trying. And God knows that too. You know, he doesn't judge on, on, on your, what you produce as much as he judges on, on your heart and your attitude and what you're trying to do. I've tried to do this with my kids, my, you know, ever since they were really young. And it's been hard, but it's something I still try to do. I don't judge them on whether they can do it or they can't do it or whether, whether they, they broke the dish or not. It was, were you being careful? Well, yeah. Did you have it with two hands? Yeah, but I tripped. That's okay. That's an accident. Accidents happen. Or, you know, they, they go and try to wash the dishes, and, and it's a horrible job. 
So we yell at them? No. We, we reward them and say, wow, great, thank you, you did a great job. And when they leave the room, you rewash them. And, and you might even think the dog would have done a better job. But we try not to tell them that because we, we're, we try to judge them of, of what they can do at their age and their abilities. And that's how Christ judges us. But we know, we know, and we will know when we are standing before the judgment seat. And that's when we say, you know, you can change the way you live now so that on that day, you don't shrink back in shame and say, I know that I could have done better. Has anyone ever come up to you and said something like that? Is this the best you can do? And you knew it wasn't? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, yeah, that's the best. I just didn't know how to do it. But those other times when you went no, you might have said yes, but you know it was no. I know I could have done better. I just didn't want to. The judgment seat of Christ will be for the rewards for what you've been faithful to, and it'll be difficult. So that's the, that's the hard side of the judgment seat of Christ. But praise God, we're all alive. We can change it. We can live for the Lord. We can abide in Him. And that's what the Scripture here says. Just abide in Him. When you abide in Him, you're going to be pleasing because He's going to tell you and He's going to direct you and you're going to listen and respond to Him. Have fellowship with Him. The believer who, who doesn't abide experiences shame because he realizes that he could have done more. And it's not about doing more, but he, he could have done what he was told. He could have been what, what he knew that God was calling him to be. Samuel Hoyt had a good summary of what this passage was talking about. I'm going to read that. We're almost done. We're, we're right on time here. The Bible suggests that there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the measure of unfaithfulness of each individual believer. Therefore, it should be each believer's impelling desire to be well-pleasing to the Lord in all things. Although Christians apparently will reflect on this earthly life with some regret at that point. Now remember, this isn't heaven. This isn't heaven. He has not wiped away every tear yet. And we're, there's joy, but I think he's going to have us go through this judgment. And, and, it, and when, when the new heaven and new earth comes, it says, then he will wipe away every tear. I think in this moment there might be some tear shed. I think there will be some regret. Now somehow when we get to heaven, there will be no more regret. So this is a, this is a one-time deal. Who lives right now with guilt in their life? Amen? That will go away in heaven, and you should not have it now. Guilt is of the devil. You should not be guilty of, of what you've done in the past. You should acknowledge it, repent of it, and move on. But we have guilt, and it's something to work through. In this moment, we're going to have shame for a moment. So although Christians will apparently reflect on this earthly life with some regret, they will also realize what is ahead for them in the heavenly life. This latter realization will be the source of boundless joy. So here we go. We have to, we have to turn a corner, but we have to sit here for a minute. We, we need to go to the dark places, the hard places, sometimes, because we can't just pretend everything's good. We need to know that there's going to be regret and shame if we're not living for Christ. But yet in that same moment, we're standing before the judgment seat, and what's right on the other side of it is boundless joy is eternity with God, is wonderful beyond comprehension. It's amazing, and the tears will go away, and we won't live with that regret. But why, why face it at all when we have a, have a choice? It says what's, what's ahead for them in heavenly life, this latter realization will be the source of boundless joy. 
Another, another gentleman, uh, Shiler English, says this, Joy will indeed be the predominant emotion of life with the Lord. But I suspect that when our works are made manifest at the tribunal, at the Bema seat, some grief will be mixed with joy, and we shall know shame as we suffer loss. But we shall rejoice also as we realize that the rewards given will be another example of the grace of our Lord. For at best, we are unprofitable servants. And so there's going to be some regret, but the joy that's waiting for us, we're going there for the joy. And, and, but we can change the amount of shame and regret that we have. And, and this is the way, the way God is. We just need to just press into him and say, Lord, I'm going to abide in you. I want to abide in you. And we're going to be there forever with him in heaven. And joy will be that, that thing, that predominant emotion of life. I love that. There was an illustration, and in, in closing, this is, this is a great illustration for us because the judgment seat of Christ is waiting for all of us. There's no way out of it. We're going to stand before him at the Bema seat when he rewards us. Now, don't get a big head and go, man, you know, I've done really good because you're going to take that reward anyways, and the Bible says you're going to cast it at his feet. You're going to take the crowns, you're going to cast them at his, at his feet. Now, now th- there's other things about ruling over cities and things that we'll talk a little bit more about in a couple weeks. But it's not about us. It's about his faithfulness. But I love this illustration about the judgment seat of Christ. I think it puts it in perspective because this was my story. The judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one did not do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they didn't earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they have been graduated and they are grateful for what they did achieve. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. That's not what it is. To underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. So if you overdo the sorrow, it's making heaven hell. That's not what the point is. But if you under, underdo the sorrow, then you're actually making faithfulness to God inconsequential. That means there is no difference of whether somebody's faithful to God or they're unfaithful. As long as they're saved, it's all the same. And church, that's not the case. He's going to reward you for what you do. And you're going to lose rewards for what we don't do in the manner which we don't do it. Next week, we're going to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, the second coming in the millennium. The week after that, we're going to be in heaven. Hopefully not literally, or maybe hopefully literally. (laughs) Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come as I pray, and we're going to close with one song. As we we just want to think about this and, and dedicate ourselves to him, that last line, To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat is to make heaven hell. To underdo the sorrow aspect of this message of the judgment seat of Christ is to make inconsequential faithfulness to Christ. Your faithfulness to Christ has got great consequences in this life and in the life to come. Heavenly Father, those of us who called upon your name already and know you as our Lord and our Savior, God, we rejoice more than, than all the others because we know that you promised us life, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that, that our destination 
is to be with you in eternity forever. And that nothing can change that. Nobody can take us out of your hand. But God, we also know that the life that we live on this earth is important. That we would serve you faithfully. And that we would love you. That we would abide in you. And that we would be faithful to your call to us. To do whatever it is that you're calling us to do. Father, we want to give you our whole lives, our hearts. Dedicate to you this morning and say, Lord, we want to live faithfully to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. We commit ourselves afresh to you. Let's just sing this song together, and at the end, we'll be dismissed. This is my desire to all.